Okay, well, thank you for uh, your attention this morning. We're going to continue in the Father series, The Fatherhood of God, and as uh, Grant's already had alluded to, uh, we're talking today about the second installment, The Father Provides, The Father Provides For, and uh, we're just going to uh, hopefully get a little closer dimension and, and focus on how our Father does that for us. But as we're going to do with my talks, I'd like to do a recap each time for the day before. So I'd like to have you read these rather than me, and I'll just keep clicking. So Esty, I don't know if we start on the girls' side always or not, but why don't you just start, and as I go, just, just read along here as we recap yesterday. It takes a father to begin. The father becomes more personal in New Testament because of Jesus' atonement. Father is full of all things good. It's unprecedented and unsurpassed. The Father begat us naturally, but because of sin, we must be begotten again in our spirit. The Father begets us through faith, which comes from His Word, which explains the report. Whoops. The report teaches that the Messiah suffered, was a substitute, and justifies the sin. So each time as we begin, I'd like to just recap the day before, and maybe, maybe that's a, a distraction, but to me, these, these messages all kind of flow together very nicely. So that brings us to this morning, uh, the Father provides for my every need. And so, as we have been trying to do, we're kind of covering three general areas as we go through this uh, message this morning. First of all, the Father is the source. Uh, that's who we're talking about as we talk about provision, is He is the source. Then I want to think about our greatest need. And thirdly, I'd like to talk about the provision of all things. And as we have done on the previous message, we're going to keep uh, revisiting James 1, 17 and 18. And you'll see here that the emboldened letters as its relative or or. Uh, you know, in context of our message this morning. So let's all in unison read these two verses together. Every good and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights with the So obviously the first part of the, the verse 17, every good and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father. That's a pretty clear uh, source of Scripture for what we're talking about today. So the first point I'd just like to make is the Father is the source of every bestowment. Bestowment just simply means giving or gifting. And I'd like to make a distinction in James. He says every good gift and every perfect gift. I'd like to suggest that good gifts are those gifts in which we perceive as good. Uh, for example, this morning at 4.15, the, the shower water that I had was very hot. I could perceive that and say that's good. That was a good gift. Perfect gifts, every perfect gift, I'm going to suggest may not always seem good from the natural eye, but they are gifts that God is bestowing upon us to bring perfection or maturity in our lives. But regardless, and I'm speaking to those of us who are born-again believers, those of us in Christ, but the Father 
is the source of every bestowment. And we'll, we'll touch on a verse in a moment that shows that we don't even have to be believers. God still bestows uh, every gift that anyone can see or experience. So I want to just give you just a little icon of how I think of the Father uh, bestowing gifts. This is looking out our front window or our front door. We did have some drought. We do have sprinklers, so the yard doesn't show that. But this was a very, very blessed experience after much drought. Well, obviously, that's just a visual image, but showers of blessing come to mind. But you see, the blessing is coming down. It's touching the earth. It's giving uh, sustenance and, and life. And, of course, as a child, as a childlike heart of faith, we just, uh, there's not much sound there, but he did make a little chuckle. I don't know if you could hear it, but he's out there just enjoying himself in the downpour or in the bestowment of rain, showers from above. So let's talk about these gifts again. First of all, as I talk about a gift that is a good gift, it's easy for us to look at them and we can say, wow, that's a great gift. And we can say, yum, got something in my eye here. This must be a perfect gift. But it's not hard for us to discern goodness when we see a gift like this that is a provision. But how about this? This is what I'm talking about as far as a perfecting gift. This might be the times where we actually experience pain. You can read down there in the bottom, And every branch that bringeth forth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. So this would be a type of a gift that I would like to suggest is a perfect gift. So... Just allow me, if you would, to just simply put it this way, that the good gifts may be more in the realm of natural, and the perfect gifts may be in, in the realm of where we need a spiritual context or a spiritual eye to see it. Let's just take a, a little uh, journey through just a few scriptures to show how that the Father is the source of every bestowment. I think, is it right here? Is it your turn? So if you could just start at the top, move down, just go down the top. Thank you. Who covereth the heaven with clouds, who prepareth the rain for the earth, who maketh grass to grow upon the mountains, he giveth to the beast his food. That ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven, for he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. Just keep going across. For God so loved the world he gave. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? So it's a sampling of scripture here. Of Obviously the Old Testament one at the top is referring to natural bestowment. But what I want you to see, and there's a lot of verses in Psalms especially that would point this out, that our Father in heaven, he feeds everything and bestows everything on the plant life, the animal kingdom, and just the earth and the universe, and as Vince said the other day at church, it's by him that all things consist, but he, he provides for everything, including us. The next verse down, uh, I think maybe this might have been referred to also as common grace. In other words, you don't even have to be a believer to receive the blessings of God. Your farm might lay next to an unbeliever's farm, and you're going to get the same rain and sunshine and so forth. But the point is, is that God is the, the giver and the bestower of all things. Here we start to turn into more of the spiritual blessings of Christ Jesus. We all know that the greatest provision that was ever given to mankind was the Lord Jesus himself. For God so loved the world that he gave 
his only son. And again, that is a gift that is to bring us to perfection. And then in Romans at the bottom, He that spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? The logic in that verse is just simply stating that if He would go to the extent to give us Himself or His Son, which is His greatest and best blessing, it only stands to reason that He would freely give us all things. So this again is our... our uh, our title that was given to us provides for my every need. And I want to just give some de definitions. What is a need? A need, of course, and we're going to contrast that in a moment with our wants, because that's probably pretty important as we think about God's provision. But a need is to lack what is necessary. Uh, a need can also, as a second definition, say a thing that is wanted or required. But to lack what is necessary is what a need is. And I'm suggesting to us that God provides all of our needs, and He also will often go further than that into even our wants. But what does the word necessary mean? Let's tie this first definition together. To lack what is necessary, well, what's necessary? Necessary is that which must be, that cannot be otherwise. That's sort of a tongue twister, but I think you understand. It, necessary is the idea that I have to have whatever it is in order for that thing to be continuing on or otherwise it doesn't continue. Now a want, on the other hand, is to wish for or to desire. And again, this I think is a different subject matter really than needs because we can want all kinds of things and God may or may not bless or bestow us with our wants. But let me ask this question. We're transitioning now to what I wanted to say or wanted to discuss with what is our, whoops, I hit the button. What is our greatest need? I suppose that you already have this in your mind, but let me just take us through a natural perspective. Somebody might say at the college or the secular university that probably the most important need that we as humans have is air. We must have air to breathe. In fact, our, bra our brain can only survive about six minutes, and then it begins to die. So, maybe we would say, well, air is our greatest need. Someone else might say, well, uh, our brains could really go dead, but we need food also. We can only survive about 20 to 40 days, and then uh, we're going to start to die of hunger. But you see that we're going to die if we don't have food. So maybe someone would say, that's our greatest need. How about water? Humans can survive about four to ten days without water, and then after that, they die. I don't know if you see a pattern here that is at the end of each of these sentences, but just keep watching. How about this one? Sleep. Some people will feel like sleep is an important thing. I like sleep, and uh, I've never really been sleep-deprived all that much, but the longest on record for anyone to have no sleep is 264 hours or 11 consecutive days, and after that, hallucination begins, and then hallucination usually uh, brings on depression, and typically suicide will eventually be a real challenge. So it leads to death. How about the right temperature? Once your body temperature hits 82 degrees, you become unconscious, which can lead to death. On the other hand, if it gets too hot, 104 to 107 degrees, you begin heat stroking, and that often can lead 
to death. This last one maybe is out of sorts, but I just put it in here. It was interesting to me that there's something called skin hunger or touch. And people who feel affection deprived are less happy, more lonely, more likely to experience depression and stress, and in general are in worse health. So this is something that you know, medical people can, can bring up and point that we really do need touch. But let's just think about this, and this is where I, I assume you knew I was going. In light of eternity, this life is short. Therefore, I think our greatest need has nothing to do with what I said previously as far as life in the natural. I mean, it's nice to have life in the natural and to have breathe, air to breathe and food and water and sleep and rest and touch and all those things, right temperature. But really, our greatest need here is this, life after we die. And so that leads us to, I think, probably hands down, everyone in this room would agree with me that this is our greatest need, salvation. Of course, salvation can take on, uh, it's a broad term, Within salvation is what I would call justification, which means that there's a way in which we come to be right with God, but also there's sanctification, which means a way in which we continue to grow in our relationship with God through uh, the provisions that God gives to us. But our greatest need is to be saved and to get saved in a sanctifying, more progressive way each day as we go on in our Christian life. That's our greatest need. And I want to say it's very obvious that God will provide for this through the Lord Jesus Christ. Brother Raymond talked about this 22nd chapter of Genesis yesterday as it relates to worship. But I want to use this slide, and I was counting on this passage because it's special to me. I want to explain a couple of illustrations in a moment. But I don't know if you're familiar with the, the law or the principle of first mention. But this, the law of first mention is when you look into the scripture and you're studying the Bible, you look for a place, like I'm looking for the word provide, which is our title. The first mention or the first place you find that word in the scripture, uh, if you look at its meaning there and you look at how it's used and what it means, typically the first time you see a topic in the scriptures, you can, you can pretty well assume that the way that is explained in this passage is going to be the way you'll understand it through the rest of the scripture. So that's why I went here, and of course, we know this story. Abraham and Isaac are headed up the mountain. They've left the men back a little ways. And Isaac is looking over all of the, the provisions that they have, for the, and he says this to his father. He says, I see we have everything, but where's the sacrifice? And Abraham, in a very probably unknowing way, makes a very profound statement. He says, my son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went, both of them, together. He will provide himself. I know that's, we don't want to have wordplay here, as we talked about last night, but what I think we can see, just as the way it comes out in the English language, it's very obvious and clear that this himself right here is a foreshadowing and a looking forward to God himself, or Jesus, being that perfect sacrifice. Let's keep on reading. And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. We're kind of fast-tracking through, but you know this passage. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him, for I know that thou fearest God, seeing that thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, 
and behold, behind him, caught in a thicket by his horns, and Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. So I want to talk just a moment about, maybe you've heard the phrase Jehovah-Jireh. Oftentimes people, I've heard that just very quickly said, well, that means God will provide. I started to study into this a little bit longer, and the word Jireh, I think we all know what Jehovah means. That's the self-existent, eternal God. But Jireh means to see, to see. I have that there at the bottom. And what I'm, I'm going to suggest that what's going on in this passage is, is yes, there's the word provide here. It's the first mention of this word. But the primary thing that I think happens is God sees the surrender of Abraham. That's what he sees. And then he moves to provide for that need. So what I want to say to us is that this is a very important principle about God's provision. Until God sees our surrender, oftentimes he will withhold spiritual provision. So as we think about just coming to the Lord, he wants to see us repent, humble ourselves, come before him, be baptized, and when God sees that, He provides the Holy Spirit and salvation and a whole lot of things. But there is a principle of when God sees Abraham surrendering, He begins to provide a ram in the thicket. I want to give you two illustrations in my personal life. I hope this isn't irrelevant or it doesn't feel sidetracked. But I want to just give you two examples of how I feel like this has been experienced in my life. Number one... We had a rental property. It was a large farmhouse on the corner of a larger farm that we wanted to split off and sell. And we took that application to the township and to the town, or this little city limit, and we got the approval to do that. But in the process of deciding how we could cut this piece of land up and sell it, the health department got involved and said, we don't know if there's a leach field associated with this house that you're trying to sell. It's been there since 1912. It's a nice, solid farmhouse, but the health department came out and they said sometimes what happens is you just take your sewage, it takes out of the house, it'll go into a septic tank, goes down through the field tile and ends up in the creek. And that's probably what's going on here at your farm. And so that was something we knew was a possibility, but the health department finally told me, they said, well, we'll, we'll be fine to let this sell. You can make this transaction. But, and we're not going to make any inspections happen, but they said, just be known that if you have a buyer that wants to buy it, they have the right to have an inspection done of the septic system. And if they do that, it could cause them, or cause us as the health, of, of the health department to force you to put in a leach field. In our area, that'd be between $8,000 and $20,000 for a leach field for this six-bedroom house. And so that was kind of a scary thing for me. We decided to go ahead and, and uh, put the thing on the market. We had it for sale for several months. No one came forward, didn't have any bites really, just a few. But eventually, uh, we took the signs down, dismissed the realtor, and we just prepared to keep the rental and keep going as we've been going. And just a few weeks later, a buyer came forward and said, we'd like to give you an offer. They were people we knew, and so 
I went through the house with them, showed it to them, and they made an offer. And um, we countered, and they came to an agreement with us, and we decided to sell. In the process of me explaining all that to them, I said, I just want you to know there may be a need for a leach field here. And I said, if we are forced to put in a leach field, it will, of course, affect the selling price that we've agreed upon. Because I, I don't want to just completely absorb the cost of the new leach field. What I was trying to really do is to tell them, don't have an inspection. But that was that. I was worried about that. But so the, the, the offer kind of came together. The realtors were putting the contracts together. And on a Monday morning, I got a call from my realtor. And he said, there's an inspection that they'd like to have on Tuesday of the septic system. Now, that, by law, they are, they are, they're allowed to do that. But I thought I kind of had an understanding that we probably weren't going to do that. But nevertheless, they wanted to have a, a septic uh, inspection. All I'm saying is, is that this is something that I did not want to do. I did not want to have to pay for a leach field. It's something I wanted very badly. It's probably not something I wanted as bad as my only son, Isaac. But I did not want to have to have an inspection and have to absorb that kind of dollars. So I was pretty uptight, and um, I actually, we started praying for that in our family, but eventually, I can just remember the moment when I just kind of lifted the knife. I know this may sound, maybe it isn't interesting to you, I don't know if Abraham lifted his knife or if he went down underneath the neck with his son as he started to do this, this sacrifice, but I'm going to call it lifting the knife. I lifted the knife, I surrendered, and I decided, okay, fine, you can have the inspection. I told them, go ahead and do it, and we'll just see what happens. My worry again was is that this buyer could get this inspection in place, then decide they didn't want to negotiate the, the, the price, and then they could be off in the distance, and I'd be left with the cost of a leach field with an unsold rental. But I lifted the knife, and I surrendered. And God saw that. Jira. I'm not saying it's going to work this way every time, but so a few days later, the phone rings, and it's the realtor, and of course, right away, I want to know what happened with this leach field inspection, and he says, well, the leach field man came out of the inspector, and he inspected the septic tank. It was very good shape, and he said, guess what? He found a leach field. There's three lanes out there in that yard. He could find them just as plain as day. That was the ram in the thicket. Now, I'm not trying to preach health and wealth, don't get me wrong, but what I'm saying is that when we finally give up, Jehovah sees the lifting of the knife, the thing that is so important to you, so important to me, when we finally give up, he sees our surrender and he moves to provide for that need. I think that's the principle of Abraham and Isaac in Genesis 22. He moves to fill our need. I want to give you one more illustration, then we'll move on. And I'm not trying to just talk about myself. I'm a little sensitive this way, but these are illustrations. I think it's good for you to see. I, I want to say these are biblical principles, but they come right down into our lives. We had another illustration uh, in my life recently where we were trying to build a small house on a property that we were not very familiar with, and we were in the process of digging footers, and we ran into some pipes that were not supposed to be on our property. And so I called up the association that 
was in this development, and I, I explained the situation, and they were trying to work with us and say, well, we don't know why they're there, and we don't know how it's going to get changed. And I just asked the association president, I said, can you give me assurance that I will not have to pay to relocate these pipes that are on my property that aren't supposed to be there? And he said, no. I cannot give you that assurance. These guys in the association are men that came along after the development was done. They didn't really have anything to do with the initial underground utilities. So I could kind of understand that. <clears throat> but again, I was uptight. I was worried. I, I didn't know what to do. We had an inspector in, uh, scheduled for Tuesday morning to continue to, to dig the footers and pour the footers. And on Saturday night, we hit these pipes. So I go back down to this property on, on Monday morning, and we did get an, a meeting arranged with the developer that was involved in the beginning. And he comes out. Of course, our family was praying. Maybe you think that we're weird, but we pray about things like this. But this was something that I was struggling with, and I did not know what to do. I, I did not know how to behave myself, I might say. In fact, I wanted to really be angry with this association that they were going to expect me to correct a problem that wasn't mine. So the morning I got down there, this developer came up, very, very nice gentleman. He walked up to the hole in the ground, he saw the pipes, and he, we knew that there was an easement on the side of our property that the pipes were supposed to be in, but instead they were cutting right up through the corner, like on a diagonal through our property. He said, well, they're supposed to be over there, and he said, I don't know why they're here, but he said, don't worry, he said, we'll take care of it. Well, that was sort of the ram in the thicket a little bit. I should say this. I meant to, to discuss my, my surrender. I finally came to this conclusion after praying. You know, I thought, maybe what I'm going to have to do is just absorb this expense, and this is my first opportunity to be a Christian in this new community. It's not what I wanted to do. It's not what my flesh wanted but it's what I thought God was really telling me. That's how a Christian would handle this. And at that point, I feel like that's when I lifted the knife. I surrendered. And I thought, okay, whatever. So that, to go back to where I was in the story, Monday morning he comes and, and he begins to explain that, yeah, uh, we'll take care of it. You can go on. And I said, can we go ahead and dig footers? And we know where the pipe is. So once we get the footers poured, we can dig these pipes up later and you can relocate them as you see fit. He said, yeah, go ahead and do that. So that was kind of that ram in the thicket that was provided. And then he said, before he left, he said, there's an older man that was supposed to meet me here, and he's the one that put in all these underground pipes originally. He said, he must have forgot the meeting, but he said, I wish he would have been here. But anyway, he's not here, so he left. And about five minutes later, he came, he came back with a pickup that was following him, and inside that pickup was the older man. And so he walks up there, and he's had a stroke, this older man. And uh, he looks at those pipes, and in his stuttered kind of way, he said, these pipes aren't even active. These pipes don't even, they're obsolete. And he remembered that back before, years before, they had laid out the development in a little different angle. He said, we had the pipes going through here, but he said, instead of uh, taking them back out of the way when we knew they were wrong, we put them in over here where they're supposed to be. But he said, these pipes aren't even active. Well, to me... You know, I'm just about as happy as can be because now, not only do we have to stop on the progress of pouring footers, we can go ahead, but now we don't even have to mess with these pipes. We can just let them in there, and if we hit them any other place on the property, we can just dig them up and throw them out. 
Maybe that's carnal. Again, I don't want you to get the idea that they always work out this way, but to me, these are two real-life illustrations for me where I feel like what God had to see in me was a surrender. It kind of reminds me of what Raymond was saying. We have to say yes. God, is, his eyes, as, as Raymond was saying, is going to and fro on the earth looking for people who will say yes, who will surrender. And I think when that happens, God will move to provide Jehovah Jireh. Maybe we spent too long on that, but, but this is what I think happened to me in both of those examples. Something even more important, more exceeding and more abundant occurred than I could have even imagined. I didn't even know we had a leach field. I thought we were headed for putting in a new leach field. And by surrendering and letting that inspector come out, here we are. We've got everything we need already. I didn't know how we were going to resolve the pipe issue. But eventually we find out that those pipes don't even have any bearing on anything. And so, now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. So, that's just a little bit of my personal testimony on how Jehovah Jireh works. But back to the main issue that was being foreshadowed in that Genesis 22 is this. Our Savior. This is our greatest need. And um, this is a verse that you might uh, think I'm being a little too narrow on, but... I've always noticed in Philippians 4.19 that there's no S on that knee. And I hear it quoted oftentimes with an S, as if to say that all your pipes will be provided, all your lease fields will be provided, and that's not promised. But there's a singularity here that I think points us to Jesus. He is our primary and most important singular need that we know will be provided for us according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. So as we think about Jesus being our salvation and the way in which we get all spiritual blessings, um, can we have somebody, whoever's next in line, to read this verse for us? Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power has given us. Unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, to the knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through us. So thank you for reading. I think what I want to point here to is that Jesus, we always know that he's our Savior at the cross at Calvary, but he's also the way in which this divine power, these all things come to us. This great provision of the divine nature that we can be partakers of his divine nature and we can have all of these great and exceeding promises. And really what we're saying is that it'll lead us further into this sanctified life. So I want to go back to these, the reason I went to those natural things first, as far as what someone might say is our greatest need. I want to go back to air, to breathe, and I want to make some corollaries or some comparisons between the natural air that we breathe and the spiritual blessings or the all things that God provides to us, and I'm going to compare the Holy Spirit to the air we breathe. 
the Holy Spirit, that, that word is pneuma, or air, or wind, or current of air. And I always think about breathing. When you think about John 20, 22, he breathed on them and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. So what I'm suggesting is we need natural air to, 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 to live naturally, but we really need the Holy Spirit in order that we would live spiritually and continue. So I'm making these comparisons. Air is like Holy Spirit. While the physical breathing produces or provides body, the body with constant supply of oxygen, our breathing also takes away carbon dioxide or the impurities out of our system. Spiritual breathing, in much the same way, it provides our spirits with a constant supply of Holy Spirit and it gives us a way to exhale our impurities. So we inhale the Spirit and we exhale sin. That's the corollary or the comparison I'd like you to see as we think about what God has provided. He's provided all things. And the first one I'm talking about is, yes, he's provided natural air, the common grace, but he's also provided the Holy Spirit for his believers wherein we can inhale the Spirit and we can exhale sin and the impurity. So I, like I say, I'm a visual person, so take a look at the diaphragm here. The Spirit comes in. The diaphragm expands. You're filled with the Holy Spirit. And then you exhale, the diaphragm shrinks, and out goes sin. And so just as natural as it is for us to breathe, I think we ought to have that same sense in which that we are breathing in the Holy Spirit and we are constantly confessing and asking the Lord to take our sins and impurities away. So what does it mean, or what does it look like, I guess, to breathe in His presence? John 14, 16 says, I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. When we breathe in the Holy Spirit, we are actually breathing in his presence. And that's an eternal presence that we actually can be partakers of, as God has provided his Holy Spirit for us. This is something else. When we breathe in the Holy Spirit, I think it would be safe to say we breathe in his passion. I think that's been mentioned different times already. I can't remember which speaker, or maybe it was Kent this morning in his devotion, that we would breathe in his passion. What is his passion? Maybe I'm too narrow, but I think that this is one of his greatest passions, that he would bring many sons unto glory. So the day after tomorrow, when we go to Seattle, I wonder if if what, what this passion should be, if we're breathing in the Holy Spirit, is that we would evangelize. We would bring many sons unto glory. I think that's part of what, what this spirit that God wants us to breathe in and be partakers of, but he wants it to actually have an outpouring that touches other people. I mean, God provides for us, but he hopes, I think the goal of provision is that we would let it go through us to other people, and that's part of breathing in his passion, breathing in his purity. Today we're going to talk about, or you're going to hear about, moral purity. Breathing in his purity. All of these verses of Scripture, or at least I, I'm trying to tie these into the Holy Spirit, but notice what it says here in Matthew 3, 12, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. That's what happens when the Holy Spirit comes in to our lives. And what happens then is when we are filled with the Spirit, there's no room for sin. And so what needs to happen is we need to confess and repent 
and I don't know if you can imagine this, but take a big breath and hold it, and don't exhale. I don't know, probably we could, depending on the sizes of our diaphragm, we could, some of us could outlast each other, but imagine never exhaling. Feels good. Exhaling sin is something that feels good. When the Holy Spirit's coming in, this is one of His provisions, it feels good to exhale. And of course, we know this verse in 1 John, if we confess our sins, this word just simply means to agree or acknowledge that we have sinned. And I think this is a big one, repent. I'll just mention this. I like this illustration. If you think about a major league baseball game and you see that pitcher wind up and throw the ball about 100 mile an hour towards home plate, the ball's going this way, but then the ball comes into contact with a bat. If the, if the hitter makes contact, suddenly the ball changes direction. I would say that's a good picture of repentance. The ball repented. So we need to keep that in mind that just simply confessing, that's important, and he's just and faithful, but repenting is actually changing the direction that we were going from a sinful direction into a holy direction. So that was the Holy Spirit. Let's move to that second one, food. We're making comparisons of what God has provided for us as our Father, the Holy Spirit, Now I want to talk about the food, and I'm going to compare that to the Word of God. Okay, Eric, is it your turn? Go ahead and read this one here. As newborn So, as 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 God's Word, it takes us into this growing pattern. What we just read, that we may grow thereby, but we need to desire it. And I would just say that I don't know if this is true for you. It hasn't always been for me. But let me just say that the more we experience and eat of the bread of life or the word of God, the more delicious it becomes. And I would just say that this is sort of a lifelong quest. If you struggle to read the Bible, and and we all have different academic abilities and levels, don't get yourself feeling so bad that you don't enjoy the word of God, but just keep doing it. Because what I found, and that's something that resonated with me with Raymond, is that I also was probably someone that wasn't born again when I was first in the church. But nevertheless, I kept reading the Bible. And that's what saved me. I mean, Jesus is my Savior, I understand that. But but it was the Word of God that eventually became more and more delicious. Anyway, gotten off on that a little bit. But the food, I want to compare to the Word of God. Just as food brings growth to the physical body... The Word of God brings growth to our spiritual body. So let me give you just a couple of of, uh, principles. I've already kind of said this, got ahead of myself, but learn to appreciate the Word of God. Now Job, uh, I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. I'm not quite there yet. I want to be, just to be honest, I like food, and uh, there are times when I'm not hungry, but... Boy, to make this statement is the statement I want to have, because this is really, this is more important than my necessary food. So it's something that if, if uh, someone would ask me what's one of my greatest life lessons uh, that I've learned so far as a believer, it would be this, this thing here, that learn to appreciate the Word of God and just keep on forcing yourself to read it. It will come, little by little. 
I'd also say it's good to learn to study the Word of God. Again, let's not forget we're in the provision section. We're in what God has provided as all things to give us sanctification and salvation. But learn ways to study the Word of God. And again, uh, this is first, 2 Timothy 2.15. Luke, why don't you read uh, Study to Show. Study to show myself I want to just point out, you know, I, I think this is important that we all study. I would just encourage, I've said this before, whether you're a sister or whether you're a brother, I think it would be a good exercise that at least once a month you would prepare a sermon. You may never, you may never share it. You might submit it to some publication as an article. You might have it something that you would... Uh, use in your evangelism that you're meeting someone in, in Walmart or at the store. But stu study the Word of God and learn to study it. And don't worry about what level you are or whether you uh, understand eisegesis or exegesis or any of those big words that may sound in, uh, kind of intimidating. Just continue to learn ways to study the Word of God. And then, of course, James makes it very clear we need to obey it. But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. So this is another one of those challenges that, as, as uh, beings, I don't know if it's because we're body, soul, and spirit, whatever it is, but we have the ability to read, to know, to have intellect, and yet never obey it. And this is a challenge. I'm just offering it to us that the food that God provides he wants us to do these things. He wants us to appreciate His Word, to study it, and He wants us to obey it. And when we do these things, we can rest assured that it's going to be a fruitful provision in our life. All right, now I want to go to water. We're just kind of going down through these comparisons. Water, I know this has been talked about also. John 4, we'll come around this way. But whosoever drinketh of the water... I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him. The water So, we want to promote water, or we want to compare it. Just as water is the water of life, it quenches our natural thirst. The water of life quenches our spiritual thirst. And one thing I noticed that you remember yesterday, I told you you have about ten and a half gallons of water in your body. And that's what I've learned is why that when you're really, really thirsty, the only thing or the best thing that will quench your thirst is water. Not Gatorade or not soft drinks or not iced tea, but water. It's because there's a, there's a likeness in us that we want, a, a, we want water. I'll just go through a couple of things of comparison here. We can have dehydration. I think you're all familiar with that in the natural. But when you don't have enough water in your body, you become dehydrated. And here we can see how it happens in Jeremiah chapter 2. For our people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and heathen out of cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. Well, I think what, thank you, what I think is going on here is that these, these people, and, and we're no different, we tend to try to find fulfillment or sustenance or a, a thirst that can, or a quenching somewhere other than God, who is our living water source. So we want to have the living water as the provision that God has given to us. Spiritual diabetes. Maybe these are kind of crazy, but diabetes is really when, when your body 
uh, doesn't regulate the, the blood sugars in your level or, or the blood, blood sugars in your blood level. And so uh, what can really hinder diabetes is when you don't drink enough water. It causes glucose in your blood to become concentrated and it leads to a higher blood, levels, blood sugar levels. And so then what we have to do is put in insulin. You see people with uh, diabetes, they put in insulin and the goal of, of insulin is to, to bring balance to your blood sugar. Let's read Hebrews 4.2, Garrett. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that faith. I'm just suggesting that if we'll drink of the water of life, we're going to hear the word, and we're going to mix it with faith, and it's going to be a balancing and a profitable experience for our growth. Let's go to the last one, which I think I have from time to time, which is dry mouth. I'm having it right now, and I'm speaking too long here. But glands are not producing enough moisture. And you know what causes it? Disease and impurities. And so what I think happens in the spiritual comparison, if you're breathing in the Holy Spirit but you're not exhaling, you're going to get dry mouth. And you need to bring in that living water and let it force us to have the impurities cleansed out by the water of life. Last one is rest or sleep. Nathan? Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So rest is something that we need, spiritual rest. I have a picture here of a lamb that really is resting on the shoulders of the Lord. This is the position that all of us want and need to be in for that rest. And so just as rest to our natural bodies, gives us, we can overcome fatigue and, and, uh, and it brings rest. Spiritual rest quiets our souls and gives us peace. I'm going to kind of go through these quickly, but these are, I think, spiritual provisions that God has given to us. Rest is getting enough sleep and getting the right kind of sleep. Hebrews 4, 9 and 10. Megan? For a rest to the people of God. For he has entered into his rest, he also hath peace from his own works, as God will from his. So there's a rest that we of the people of God can have when we come away from our own works and we begin to place our faith entirely upon the work of God and what has been accomplished at, at the cross in order to give us true peace. <clears throat> Relaxation. I'm going to have to go quickly. Let's keep coming. Dana? I will keep him in perfect peace, my stay on thee, because he trusted So relaxation, I want to say something very quickly. I think it's important that we have times of rest and leisure and maybe vacation, we could call it. But just keep in mind, when Jesus advocated that, he told his disciples, come, come apart and rest for a while. The main goal and purpose of relaxation and rest is so that you can get more energy rejuvenated so you're ready to go back out and minister. That was what he was teaching the disciples. But we need some relaxation in our lives. Uh, also, we need exercise. It's a little bit of a paradox, but let's keep going. Read, read the Hebrews 4.11, please. And his labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of labor. So the word labor here kind of reminds me of this, where we have to have this, this, con this paradox where we are resting, but we've got to continue to labor or exercise to enter into that rest. It's, it, we, we need to continually go back over and over to rest in Jesus, our Savior. So we're out of time. 
and I spent too much time on those illustrations. I so, I'm sorry about that, so I can't spend what I would like to, but let's just recap very quickly. The Father is the source of every bestowment, both good gifts and perfect gifts, natural and spiritual. I took that from James chapter 1, verse 17. Second thing is, our greatest need is salvation, which comes to us through the sacrifice of Jesus, which was foreshadowed in Genesis 22, and flows to us from his divine power, giving us all things to pertain, that pertains unto life and godliness. And some of those all things that we went through are the Holy Spirit, the Word, the water of life, and spiritual rest. So, that was maybe quickly, but what I want us to see is that God our Father provides for our every need. And hopefully all those definitions and words are clear in our mind. Maybe not all of our wants, but definitely all of our need. I'm going to just click through a couple more slides. I don't have much to say. I just want you to contemplate these questions. I already mentioned one, hot water, good food. Just think about the good gifts. And then think about this one. What are some examples in your life of perfect gifts that you've received? And by that we mean those that may not seem good at first glance, but that have been used to bring you to more maturity or perfection. This is one that I hope that I continue to uh, learn. This was one of my prayer requests in our prayer group time, that I would continue to want to surrender my desires to Jehovah Jireh. He sees, he provides. Is the word delicious to me? Am I at rest?